With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Down the middle, scores! First career goal, Austin Wagner. Here's Luff looking for his first, scores! Matt Luff, first NHL goal, and the Kings have the lead. What's Luff got to do with it? Welcome to another episode of Crown Conversations. Unfortunately, James is a little busy this afternoon, but joining me instead is the wonderful, the talented, and the very knowledgeable Erica Ayala. Erica, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to connect. Um, We have worked together virtually in the past, but now we get to have a a conversation, not quite in real life, but in real time. (laughs) Yes. Well, you're 3,000 miles away at the moment, so (laughs) it's sort of a virtual, like you said, uh, work together. Right. Uh, We're going to talk women's hockey today. I'm super pumped for the upcoming NWHL season. They are in Lake Placid, correct? Yes, Lake Placid, New York. It's the single site. Um, I'm calling it the N-double. That's kind of a play on the Wubble, which was the WNBA. But yes, uh, that starts up, I can't even believe it, this Saturday, January 23rd. Wow. Uh, Time flies because I feel like (laughs) they were just talking about how to logistically have an NWHL season in the midst of the pandemic. And now here we are. It's starting in three days. It's so wild. Okay. Lots of big changes happened recently with the NWHL. Um, Let's start with the six. That is the newest addition to the NWHL. Yes. The Toronto six were announced uh, this past off season. And so prior to there was an expansion team, the first ever expansion team for the national women's hockey league was the Minnesota Whitecaps. They actually won the Isabel cup championship. That's a, a it's a like the Stanley cup. Actually, there's a link there, but anyway, that's the championship trophy that uh, teams play for. And the Minnesota Whitecaps won that in their expansion season. That was back in 2018-19. 2019-20, the Minnesota Whitecaps, they made it back to the final, but you know, COVID had other thoughts. Um, so now that means that with the Toronto Six coming in, also the first, uh, second ever expansion team, first franchise in Canada, Uh, The Toronto Six are looking to keep the streak alive of the expansion teams winning the Isabel Cup in their first season, but they have a lot of players that have played in the NWHL, their captain, Cheyenne D'Arcangelo, anyone who's watched professional women's hockey in the last handful of years probably knows that name. She played for the Connecticut Whale and the Buffalo Buttes in the NWHL, also has played in the CWHL, um, and now is coming back to um, play in North America. She played in China and with the China national team that was a, a part of the CWHL. And so she, Cheyenne D'Arcangelo is a player to watch. Emily Fluke has also had time in the NWHL. But then there are a lot of locals like uh, Michaela Grant-Mentis, um, the other two captains. Uh, Emma Woods is, is another example. And so there's just like so many really good names that it is plausible for the Toronto Six to have a really good season. Side note, Michaela Grant-Mentis is so good. So good. Uh, she's known as Bucky, which is a, a nod to like an old school uh, uh, 
hockey helmet, but yes, very good. Um, made officially made her rookie debut last season, came right out of college, played for the Buffalo Buttes, made an immediate impact on the ice, but now is going to play for the, as I mentioned, the lone Canadian team and uh, cross that border over by Buffalo and uh, play for the six. Yeah, watching her last year was such a treat, and she was such a bright spot for that Buttes team. I mean, the Buttes team was, they, they had a lot of, like, great things going on, but anytime you see Grant Mentis on the ice, like, she was making things happen, and you're like, where did this girl come from? It's crazy. It's so wild. I believe she came from Merrimack. That's where. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a long history. No, yeah, we're not going to go there. Yes. But, <laughs> um, okay, so we have to, I think, let's just address this, get this out of the way. I don't want to pit the PWHA, P- PWHPA against the NWHL, but we kind of wouldn't be here without them. I mean, the six wouldn't really be here without them. And nobody really thought the NWHL would survive without those household names from the national team. And, but here we are and here they are and they're, they're thriving and now they've got the Toronto six. So there's lots of exciting things happening. Yes. I was talking with someone else about this. Um, It's to be determined, you know, hindsight 2020 or however you want to say it. it, It's, it's definitely questionable whether the expansion to Canada would have happened um, this soon in season six. Um, But we do know even after the first season that the NWHL is kind of eyeing the Canadian market. Um, But you're absolutely right. Also that it was a roll of the dice Uh, bringing a team to Canada shortly after the CWHL folded, which of course then led to the hashtag for the, for the game movement, which has evolved, as you mentioned, into the professional women's hockey players association and not having national team players in the domestic league here in the United States for some people that is not appetizing or appealing. And there's an argument that you don't have the best players that could potentially play in a professional league in the NWHL. And I I think there's an argument to be made um, on quote unquote, either side of, of that statement. But what we do know is yes, Danny Ryland Kearney, who is now managing uh, a subgroup, we can talk about the governance model if you'd like, but the founding commissioner of the league has found ways to keep the league afloat uh, amid financial uh, crises, amid a lot of controversy with governance and the Connecticut whale, my goodness, they've gone through so many general managers and coaches. Of course, the for the game movement where players essentially said since the CWHL folded, they would not play in any professional league in North America because they didn't see it viable. And of course, with the CWHL no longer around, that was essentially a statement uh, that was targeting the NWHL. And there are pieces of the PWHPA that I think are important for the sport, Um, elevating the sport. I'm not sure if you get a 50-50 rev share, revenue share between the NWHLPA and the league, if not for the for the game movement as an example. So while I think there is still a little bit of, as Taylor Swift once sang, bad blood, um, I do think that if you step back and you look at the landscape of hockey, we're not exactly sure where everything is going to land as far as if there will ever be one league. I'm not of the opinion that there necessarily has to be. We certainly are no closer to knowing if the NHL is going to fund one league. Um, But what we do know is women's hockey is still here, whether it's the PWHPA or the NWHL, as we have seen Time and time again, um, women's hockey persists. And that, to me, is exciting. You're absolutely right. I mean, like you said, they they went through a lot of crises. I remember, I think it was at the end of season two, um, Bauer, or was it CCM? One of their vendors was accusing them of not paying their bills. And 
it looks like, oh boy, here we go. They're not going to make it, but against all the odds, these women, like, the, and I'm not talking about just Danny Ryland, Kearney, and, and the governors, but I mean, the players, everybody who's had a hand in this, they have against all the odds, they have persisted and they have insisted that women's hockey is viable. And it's, it's really, if you look at the big picture of it, like you said, I mean, it's like, it's to me, an amazing business story in, in and of itself. Absolutely. And you have to think, I mean, I'm not much of an American football fan, but I know enough to know because um, failed football leagues like the XFL that's failed. How many times are there in their third iteration now? Something like that. These, these groups fail and they come back, they fail, they come back and there's little doubt um, to whether they can somehow find the mojo and the magic because, and the reason I say that is because they come in with multi-million dollar investors and broadcast deals. And even with, um, for example, the PWHPA, they have the national team players from the United States and Canada and secret is a $1 million sponsor, which is fantastic, but that's only one sponsor that you need at least a, a handful more to have a, a league that's going to be able to maintain financially, let alone pay a livable wage. So there's still a lot of, as the WNBA would say, betting on women, that's not happening in the women's hockey space. We've also seen the USA team, the national team fight for better and more equitable pay and, um, and kind of benefits to the national team in the last handful of years. So again, there's a lot of resilience in women's hockey. And I understand why there is still, like I said, a little bit of friction and contention. I think that there are reasons that players, even fans, um, should feel very put out by a lot of what has been tolerated over the last few years. But again, if we if we just pull back a little bit and take what's working and 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 find the underlying message and continue to use the other women's leagues that exist as models, I think women's hockey could be in a really unique position to, elevate and escalate whatever the professional league or leagues is much quicker than we've seen the WNBA, which will go into 25 seasons this coming summer, or the NWSL, which is the third domestic league for women's soccer, and I think is in about season eight or nine coming up this summer. I think, again, in season six, if it's the NWHL or in cycle, we're in cycle two now, so maybe cycle three, either next year or at the end of the next Olympics, we could see the PWHPA really make great strides, but it's going to take a little bit of that stepping back, looking ahead and seeing what's best for the sport. And I do think that there are ways where those groups can coexist, but I also think there are ways where even the groups as they are now without the NHL could find ways to come a little bit closer to the middle. And I think that would be really great for women's hockey. You know, even without the NHL, um, it's not necessarily a bad thing in my personal opinion to have the PWHA and the NWHL as sort of, I'll call it a rivalry, even though it's really not, but they're sort of, pushing each other to make the sport better. And I mean, yeah. isn't that the goal at the end of the day? It is, it is. And you know, it's a little bit of that sparring. Um, I have sisters. I don't know if anyone else listening has siblings, but there are things where you rely on your siblings because you know they're good at them. And then every once in a while, especially if there's an odd number, like in my family, you have one or two, or obviously two or more siblings that, um, kind of buttheads. They both want to be good at maybe the same thing. And there are a few ways that you can take that. You can kind of go, you know, survival of the fittest, or again, you can find ways to come together and enjoy the same activity. Um, and so I think, I think there, there's a way to do both. And I think that 
And I've been saying this for a few years, um, even before the CWHL folded, but I think we'll see um, at least through the next Olympics and maybe the one after that, where these leagues are coexisting. I think, again, women's sports have to prove so much more than a men's sport ever that there's a viable market to get sponsors. And I think we've seen in very different ways that the PWHPA and the NWHL within the last um, hockey season, and now again, in a hockey season amid a worldwide pandemic, both um, models have been able to level up from the last time they hit the ice. That's extremely difficult to do. We see excuse after excuse being made by professional sports leagues as to how much money they're losing. And yet women's sports, and I ventured to guess that this will also be the case for women's hockey, women's sports have found more nationally televised games. And in having more nationally televised games, their ratings, their viewership has exponentially grown. I mean, literally off the charts grown year over year. What that tells me is that there's an underserved market for women's sports. And I do believe strongly that women's hockey will follow as well. And we'll have an opportunity to see that to some extent, at least when the NWHL has their games exclusively on NBC Sports Network in the United States. And they'll also have uh, Twitch for international viewership, which now of course includes Canada. But I think it's an exciting time. And I do believe that if the because of the star power that the PWHPA has, that they can also capitalize on some of that. But I think what we're seeing through the PWHPA and why we saw that with the NWHL in their first three, four, five, even six to some extent seasons, and why we saw the CWHL struggle is because it's hard. It's hard to build a league from scratch. It's hard to build a women's league from scratch and pay an a livable wage from the get-go. It's as you said, though, that it's hard for women to get a chance because out the door, just like right off the bat, it's almost always an automatic no. You don't get the benefit of the doubt, as you said, that men's sports get. And it's it's silly to me that we're still having this argument in 2021. It's like, if you watch it, like, I honestly think that this product is better than the AHL, ECHL, NAHL, but hey, that's just me. So let's You're focus. You're not going to get an argument from me, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> let's focus our attention um, back on the ice. The Connecticut Whale, they have made massive strides this year. Uh, I might be a little biased. I think they... Each year through the first five seasons, I was kind of rooting for somebody a little bit different. Um, and then last year, the whale just sort of swam into my heart. And I think now they're just like stuck there permanently. But Colton Orr, he has made such a difference with this team. Yes, Colton. But, you know, I also want to make sure that Bray Ketchum Peel gets some credit. She uh, stepped away from being the general manager of the team um, midway through the offseason to pursue um, a teaching opportunity. But some of the early signings that you saw that gave an indication of what Colton or the head coach, Laura Brennan, the assistant head coach and former player for Connecticut, some of that happened the, with Bray Ketchum Peel's first year as general manager. And she, of course, is a Riveters alumna and won the Isabel Cup with the Riveters in the third season of the NWHL. Um, so I want to make sure to mention Bray. But yes, I have heard and Colton was away for the team for an extended period of time. It was just a, kind of a scheduling uh, mishap. He, he did better on uh, Battle of the Blades than maybe he anticipated, <laughs> but um, um, you heard from the team that they, they felt confident in what Colton Orr wanted to do. And, you know, I'm left to wonder if he had been with the team at the beginning and kind of executing that in real time, because as we're learning, we're doing our best in this virtual uh, communication, but there's some things where it, it almost always works better in person. And I'd argue that 
coaching a hockey team is probably <laughs> one of those. Um, but you saw the steady increase and that's been a characteristic of the whale, but you definitely saw one Colton or returned. So now to have that, to have the, um, the clout and the cachet that Bray Catch and Peel had as a former player, uh, an alumna of Yale to bring in and, and attract some young players and also some veteran players getting Janine Weber midseason last year, who had been away from the league and not even competing with her national team, Team Austria. Um, I think it's really exciting. We have unfortunately heard now that Melissa Samuskevich will not be going to the N-double, but that's because of her coaching responsibilities with Penn State. But I mean, you've got Friesen, you've got so much good talent on this team with and coupled with a lot of veteran talent that is experienced in the NWHL and also at the international level that if the coaching would have made the difference last season, we're going to find out really soon with this Connecticut whale roster. And I always have to give a shout out to the heart and soul of that team, which is Shannon Doyle. I mean, she's like putting her body literally on the line for that team. I don't know if she's still doing, or if she's doing it again this year, her fundraiser that she did last year, the blocks for books, blocks for books. Thank you. Yes, she is. She is. And you are absolutely right to mention Shannon Doyle. She, at this rate, is the 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 lone survivor from the original whale roster, and she has announced that this will be her last season. Aww. So yes, um, it's going to be a special season for Shannon Doyle, and she is everything that you want in a leader. Literally putting her body on the line. She is a defender and. Connecticut whale uh, D lines and D pairs, excuse me, have had to put in a lot of work throughout the history of the Connecticut franchise. And yet Shannon Doyle also manages to be at the top of the table when it comes to assists in the league, league league wide, excuse me, but then also in points overall for her team, which tells me that again, Shannon Doyle is doing everything and anything that she can to get and meet the success that the whale uh, want and need and know that they have the capability of doing. And it certainly runs through Shannon. Certainly. Um, now on the back end, or well, I mean, in net, I should say, they have Brooke Waleko. And of course, your team is really as good as your goalie. And Brooke Wall Brick, Brick Wall Brook, <laughs> she certainly fills that role for the Connecticut whale. Um, but what about for the other teams? Who do you see as being their brick wall in net? Well, I mean, the easy place to start is with, um, I believe, two-time goaltender of the year. And that, of course, is the name is escaping me just as I was about to say it. Amanda Levier. My goodness, how do I forget Mandy, Mandy Levier? Uh, I was just stunned by playing her highlight reels in my head. But Amanda Levier um, is a goaltender that I'm not sure you always recognize necessarily as elite, but if you look at the teams that she's played on, you look at their record, and then you see her in really important games, you're left with no doubt that Amanda Levier is the real deal. The other player who was a rookie last year and whose name I absolutely love to say is Lovisa Salander. And she was the starting netminder for the Boston Pride and really led the league in all goaltending categories and statistics last season. I want to give an honorable mention to Victoria Hansen, who was uh, the second goalie in that duo for Boston. But when she got her starts, she actually got the first shutout for the Boston Pride last season. And she's a very good, very capable goaltender. And especially in such a short season where the teams are playing a lot of games back to back, I wouldn't be surprised if head coach Paul Mara relies a little bit more on Victoria Hansen. So someone 
definitely to look out for. When it comes to the Riveters, the Riveters actually picked up Sonia Shelley, who was the original starter for the Connecticut Whale last season. But then Brooke Waleko, she got good starts at a, a good time and was fitting into the pace of the Whale. So Brooke Waleko eventually took over in net for Connecticut. But Sonia Shelley kept Connecticut in really close games early in the season against the Minnesota Whitecaps against the Buffalo Buttes, and that can't be overlooked. So I'm excited to see what Sonia Shelley is going to do in net. Another player, as far as a goaltender, that I honestly have never gotten to see play, I've seen tape, um, is Carly Jackson for the Buffalo Buttes. Her teammates throughout the league from the University of Maine are very excited to see Carly Jackson play hockey in this league, which makes me excited to see Carly Jackson play hockey in this league. So that would make her a rookie, correct? Correct. It's going to be really exciting. Um, can you lay out the format a little bit of what we're going to see on the ice? Sure. And that's a great question because it's definitely different than what we've seen. So there will be a regular season the NWHL has condensed their season by like a lot, by about a fourth, um, one fourth of what they might usually do. So they're playing five games in the regular, what they're uh, tabbing the regular season. So essentially you play each uh, of the other teams one time. Then you enter what the league is calling a round robin, but might not be the perfect name for it but the round robin is essentially two additional games but the games that you play you'll be seated after the regular season and so it will be one play six etc 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 so then after the regular season and after the round robin all of the wins and losses are calculated and the teams are reseeded after those two rounds, the regular season, and I think I'm going to call it the pre-playoffs. After the regular season and the pre-playoffs, the teams are reseeded and the top four teams advance to the semifinals. One versus four, two versus three. It's a one and done playoff scenario in the Isabel Cup semifinals. And that is also when NBC Sports Network will pick up the uh, exclusive rights in the United States. So all those games will be on NBC. International audiences can watch also on Twitch. And then the it's a winner take all in the semifinal. The two winners of the two games on February 4th will play the very next day in the Isabel Cup final, also on NBC exclusively in the United States on Twitch for the international audience. And then we will have an Isabel Cup champion for the first time in two seasons. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely going to be exciting. Um, now talking about NBC really quick, mm -hmm. will we, if we're in the U.S., will we still be able to stream on Twitch? Do you know? You see, now that is interesting. How shall I say this? Especially as someone who's going to be on the Twitch broadcast. I... I, I'm going to be streaming both. Well, I'll be on the call. So I'll obviously be in the Twitch stream. But what I think you'll have to do if you want to watch in the United States is if you happen to have a VPN service, I highly recommend utilizing your VPN and then logging on to Twitch whilst using your VPN. But I would also highly recommend turning on the tube and also uh, playing the NBC broadcast because, again, this is the opportunity for women's sports to be on national television. I have every indication and the numbers have told us in the 2020 and then now leading into 2021 sports season that women's sports have shown an increase even amid a worldwide pandemic. So that's my guesstimate is that you're probably going to need a VPN if you want to stream the Twitch broadcast. But go ahead and try and give them both your clicks and views. Correct. That's my, that's the real advice. That's the best advice. But again, um, I of course would love to have everyone tune in on Twitch because I will be the analyst for the Isabel cup semifinals and final for the international audience. So really looking forward to, um, interacting with, with those fans, but again, um, do what's comfortable for you. And I guarantee you will have a good time either way. Faith. 
the favorite teams that are expected to make the Isabel Cup final, it's probably going to come down at least to in a tie, not tie, but it's it's going to come very close between the Boston Pride and the Minnesota Whitecaps, at least on paper. But I feel like we can't rule out the Metropolitan Riveters. What do you think? Not at all. I was asked to give a prediction. I actually did not predict the Metropolitan Riveters to advance to the final, even though for those who don't know, it's kind of a, 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 you know, a public secret, I guess, like it's public knowledge that I'm a Riveters fan. Um, So I kind of felt bad not picking them. But this is what I will say. The Riveters can easily be a sleeper team. I think that they've done some pretty important work on the blue line. I don't know if it's enough, if I'm being honest, especially looking at what Buffalo has done um, defensively and what Connecticut has done defensively. That being said, they've also increased their uh, power and potential at forward. I mean, Kelly Babstock is on the (laughs) Metropolitan Riveters. Rebecca Russo has returned to the Metropolitan Riveters. Russo was essentially not like lights out nonstop, assists, points machine, assists, goals, could do it all, playing with Amanda Kessel, playing with Madison Packer, and eventually leading the Riveters to that season three Isabel Cup championship. So I do think the Riveters have a shot, especially because it's such a short season. It will come down to goaltending. Um, Sonia Shelley, as I mentioned, is is quite capable, um, but we have to see how she's going to fit with this Riveters team. Boston, and I mentioned this elsewhere, they have earned the right to be the favorite coming in. The season that they had last year, the way Paul Mara and Carolyn Pilch, the general manager, have built this roster, they've improved that. They traded up for the number one pick so that they could get Sammy Davis, much like every other league around the world. If you are one of the winningest teams, you have the low or you you, um, don't have the first picks. You have uh, deeper picks in the draft. And so to trade up as the number one team coming out of the last season, that tells you how much they wanted Sammy Davis. And they got a really good one. But there are a lot of other rookies on that team that are really good. Minnesota is a favorite because they only have three new players to the roster. And so that tells you that that roster was good enough to give Boston their first loss all of last season and find their way to the Isabel Cup final, which unfortunately was at first postponed and then eventually canceled because of COVID. So Boston and Minnesota both have really earned the right to be a presumed favorite, but I absolutely love that you mentioned the Riveters because they've done some work. Again, my question is if it's enough because every team has gotten better this season. Let's talk about the Buffalo Buttes, because I kind of feel like they have almost slid into that underdog role. Yes, it's wild. And I think someone tweeted that and I was like, really, are they, is the Buffalo Buttes an underdog? Because historically that's a franchise that they made it to the first three Isabel Cup finals. They won the second, then they, you know, that was bookended by two losses, but they still advanced to the final every year for the first three seasons of the NWHL. But then I thought about it ever since the separation from Pagula Sports Entertainment, the Buffalo Buttes were actually the first ever team to be independently owned from the league. Now the Toronto Six, the expansion team are, and the Boston Pride is going into, I believe their second or third full season. I think their second, no, third, excuse me, third full season of being independently owned. Um, the, the Buffalo Buttes had that. And then for the game, which eventually led to the PWHPA happened. And we saw that there was, um, you know, that, that partnership dissolved. Um, and so since then they've really struggled. They've had great offensive players, Taylor or She scored four goals in a game and the Buffalo Buttes still lost. She scored four goals in the third period. 
and the Buffalo Buttes still lost the game. And I think that's because they were a little bit young and undisciplined defensively. They didn't play a good team defense, but they have Lisa Chesson back. Marie-Jo Peltier is back. They definitely in the offseason have focused on defense. My question, though, to them is similar to the Riveters. Is it enough, given that I do believe that every team has improved this season? It's going to be a very close season amongst all these teams. I mean, you have two weeks and it really could go either way. Who's going to be hot? Uh, I mean, there's, there's still a few questions that every team has, you know? And so will Minnesota speed be enough? It has over the last couple of seasons, but is it enough to overcome the improvements all the other teams have made? I mean, what about the six? Are they a dark horse? Cause I kind of feel like they're a little bit of a dark horse. They're an unknown entity. Nobody has seen them play as a unit yet. And you don't have a full season to figure them out. So I feel like it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And that last point, I never really thought of it that way. But since there's not really a good scout on them, that could really work to Toronto's advantage in such a, such a short season. So that's a really excellent point, Robin. But I guess we're just going to have to watch and find out. Isn't that always the way? <laughs> yes, it is. It is the way. <laughs> This is the way. That's the Mandalorian thing, right? <laughs> this is I, the way. <laughs> I wasn't I, I wasn't intending to make a Mandalorian <laughs> reference. I just it's such an old saying. <laughs> it is. It is. But that's the uh, you know, that's why they play the games, right? That's essentially what we're saying. And it's true. And that's true. what I'm looking forward to and you know, it's a tough time. I've, I've mentioned COVID a, a few times here and there and and it's important to recognize and understand that there are some things, you know, there are sacrifices that players are making to even have just this short season. Um, and there are things that obviously the league is going to want to be cautious about. So we can't forget that. But I like that they are doing a single site. I think if we're going to do sports, that's truly the safest way and really the only way that I'm personally comfortable with with, but I'm not a professional athlete. So that's not a, a determination that, that I make. And certainly no one asks my opinion, except for when I'm on podcasts. <laughs> um, but I, I just think that there's so many great storylines, the Toronto six coming in Shannon Doyle, you know, going out one last time, Haley Moore. Also, this will be her last run. Uh, I, I said for a while, at least we'll see if she comes back, but Haley Moore has been, um, you know, announced as the VP of operations for the AHL. So there are a lot of things that are, are coming in and things that are coming to a close. And it, again, it's just a really exciting time. And I think that this season has great potential to bode well for the future of women's hockey. You know, you actually brought up a really good point about the single site and um, they are taking a lot of precautions. Like I believe they're doing testing, a lot of testing. Um, they were doing testing before everybody got there. So they are definitely taking a lot of precautions, which is interesting because when you, when you compare it, not that anybody's comparing it, but when you kind of look at it in the same light, as the NHL, like the hurricanes just had to postpone a game because of COVID. Yes, I know. I just saw that earlier today. It's heartbreaking, you know, and I cover other sports and, you know, you just see, you know, postponed, postponed, canceled, canceled, canceled. It just, it's tough to wrap my mind around how almost exactly a year ago we were isolating completely to avoid death from COVID-19 and now that we as a, the collective we as a society have become more and more comfortable with people contracting coronavirus. And it's not that the deaths have gone down. Um, I think the awareness has raised, of course, the vaccine is starting to roll out, but you know, it is a challenge. I mean, there are a lot of things that happen in sports, if we're being honest, that sometimes challenge, um, 
our ethics. Uh, they challenge our morality at times. And I think what we're seeing is everyone doing what they think is best. Um, because for a lot of people, sports is that morale boost. And that's very real, not to mention that for athletes and uh, everyone that works in, in an arena and people like myself, even broadcasters, this is how we, we make our money. Um, so there are so many things to, to weigh out, but the way that um, the NWHL is moving forward, as far as they've partnered with Yale, they're still doing uh, the swab test, but then they're also doing kind of some hybrid backup tests with Yale that one will hopefully catch any false negatives, false positives, which are still very much so happening, but then also will be used as research to make sure that there's more accuracy. So there's even some kind of forward thinking there. Um, but I think that also just goes to show again that there are a lot of variables. We're sitting here talking about three days until the bubble, but I think a lot of the athletes, because of, again, those sacrifices that they've made with work and knowing people who've contracted coronavirus and being impacted um, by coronavirus, that a lot of athletes are like, well, you know, I'll believe it when we get there. Let's get there safe. Let's get there healthy and let's maintain our, our health. And then maybe I'll get a little excited. <laughs> You know, you mentioned sacrifice, and this is a really interesting thing that I thought that the NWHL was doing, is that anybody who decided to opt out for any reason, they didn't have to have a reason. They just, if they wanted to opt out of the season and they were under contract, which is a little bit tricky because they only do one-year contracts, but um, anybody who wanted to opt out, they could still get their full salary. And it's not like they're getting paid millions of dollars, obviously, but $15,000 is nothing to turn your nose up at. Yeah, absolutely. Not to mention that they're athletes that are funding their graduate programs or, you know, again, as you said, you budget in that money and then it's not there. There are some concessions that you have to make. And I think it's great. We saw the NWSL do this, but the WNBA did not. If you were in a medical exemption, you did not get paid. And that was, um, highly controversial and contentious for the WNBA that just had that groundbreaking collective bargaining agreement. So again, I really appreciate that. I think also you have to remember that with the NWSL and the, and the NWHL comparative to the WNBA, although arguably, um, you know, they're not getting paid like most pro athletes do in the United States, but you could argue that a WNBA salary is, is at minimum a, a, a comfortable uh, salary. That's not the case with the NWHL. And so I think that was something that the league had to have that flexibility. Um, they didn't necessarily have to say that they were gonna pay players that opted out, but I do think that's in good faith and I really like that move. I think that tells me that they were thinking about the athletes and uh, the sacrifices that they make year after year. And for unforeseen circumstances, um, you know, that a season not being played. Um, so I really, I really like that. I think also, if I'm being honest, and this is just me kind of spitballing, I have no insider information on this, but I think we're at a time where, because of a lot of things, COVID being one of them, where sponsors want to know that they are supporting athletes, that they're supporting women. And there's something to be said about uh, a sponsor, um, about someone who signs on to give financially to this league. I think that the, it's a good story that they can tell that they're supporting women's hockey at a time like what we're experiencing. That's a great point. Okay, I'm going to ask you your uh, predictions. Uh, tell me what you think, who goes where. Sorry, let me back up. <laughs> tell, tell me what you think uh, each team will end up as the final, like what their final win-loss is overall. And tell me who you think takes home Izzy. Oh boy. So I have to do a little math here. All right, so they have five regular season games two pre-playoff games. So that's seven total. I think 
just because they've never gone on undefe- undefeated, I'm going to say Boston goes six and one. <laughs> I'm going to say they go six and one, but they get through to the final. I'm going to say Minnesota goes maybe four and three. Minnesota sometimes has a tough time. They can be a slow starting team, which can really hurt them in such a short season. So that's why I'm going to say four and three, uh, four or five, six, yes, four and three. Um, but I predict that they will lose early so that they still can bump their seating in the pre-playoff um, portion of the season and, and still get to the semifinals. Um Okay, let's go with, I'm going to go with Connecticut. They won two games last season. I think they can win. I'm going to give them four and three as well. Um, But I think maybe they lose some of those games a little later. I think they could have a, a good start. And so essentially the opposite of Minnesota. Who do I have left? Toronto, Buffalo, and the Riveters. Um, okay. For Buffalo, mm, they struggled mightily last season, but they got early wins mostly because they played Connecticut, um, but they had to earn those. I'm going to say four, five, six, seven, three, four, five, six, seven. Do I think they're going to lose four games? I think it's possible Four, five. Ooh, that seems kind of harsh, but (laughs) I, Ooh. Oh man, I'm going to give them the three and four line. Three wins, four losses for Buffalo. Um, mm, Riveters. I just feel like that's so harsh for Buffalo. I'm sorry, Buffalo. Um, (laughs) But maybe what I'll do is I'll say that they lose late as well. I think maybe they lose some steam um, as maybe other teams pick up the pace and then they find themselves kind of on the outside looking in going into that pre playoff. And then the riveters, mm, mm. it's hard for me to imagine that team not winning four games, but again, it's such a short season. So I'll give them four and three, but maybe they have a slow start. Um, and it's going to be a toss up. I think they're going to really be in a fight to get a high seed going into the, into the pre-playoff and semifinals and then Toronto. Oh, Toronto, man, they should at least be able to win four games. Who else did I give a five and three or a five, six, seven, five and two, I guess. Mm. I'll give them a five and two line. I guess that's what I gave um, Minnesota, I think. Um, I'll give them Minnesota was four and three. The will were four and three. The Riveters were four and three. Okay. I think maybe I undershot for Minnesota, but I'm going to stick five, five and two for Toronto. I think they have a really good shot to have a good positioning going into the semifinals. Um, and then we'll see what happens. I, I guess it depends on, on who they get matched up with, but, uh, yeah. So I think, I guess that means I'm having Boston, Toronto, likely Minnesota. And then I think it's between the Riveters and the Whale, if I'm being honest, for that last semifinal. So I guess it depends when they lose those those games and, and that might make a difference. Because if you lose in the pre in the pre-playoffs, I feel like that's really tough. I was explaining it to someone, it's like the WNBA where you get the third seed. But because of how they redid the playoffs, you're the third seed and you don't play in the first round, but you play in the second round single elimination and you can get eliminated playing, you know, like a a six through eight seed because it's a one and done. I mean, can you tell I'm a New York Liberty fan? My goodness. That's exactly (laughs) what happened to them the year after or the first year of the new format. I was like, why? Um, Yeah, I know that pre that pre playoff is going to be really tricky, a little bit heartbreaking, but I think I'm ready for the drama. (laughs) It will be a dramatic season. Um, Okay, who is crown champion of the season? Oof, It's really tough for me to think 
of anyone other than Boston at this particular time. It's really tough. It's really tough. So I'm going to go with Boston uh, until proven otherwise. I really, like I said, I think they've earned the right to be the presumptive uh, top team coming into the season six. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just, I don't know what to make of the six though. That's the one that's kind of like, they're the dark horse in my mind. Oh yes, they absolutely are. And again, I, I never really gave much thought to, there's not a good scout on them. I mean, again, these players have played in the league. They've played with other players in the league elsewhere, college pros, but they've never played all together. And um, so, yeah. And then of course, we didn't even get into this. They're, they're being coached by Digit Murphy, who oh. is like, what? I mean, this woman, all she does is win. Like literally has one of the winningest records all time in women's hockey uh, at the NCAA level. And we saw what she was able to do with the Boston Blades. We saw what she was able to do with the Chinese expansion teams. I mean, they did not win the Clarkson cup, but they got there. Um, and she built those teams just like she built the six essentially. So, wow. With digit, that's a, that's lightning in a bottle right on the bench. Wow. Yeah. They're going to be, they're definitely the dark horse. you got to watch out for Toronto six and we get to see them in the first game of the season. They play the riveters. Oh, that's going to be fantastic. Yeah. For the six, I just keep going back to the fact that People know like the individual players, but we don't know how they're going to respond as a team. So I'm really excited about that. And exactly. I think based on what you said, I might make them, I might say that they go for, they keep the streak alive. They, okay. they, they might be the heartbreakers for Connecticut. Like, I feel like Connecticut is probably going to get really close. I think so. The six are just going to come in Ooh. and just like break everybody's hearts. But you're just like, I can't not root for the six because I know just- it's it's very tough. It's very, very tough. And I like I think you're right. Um, Connecticut's going to get right there. I really just think they have that opportunity. Will the six spoil it or can Connecticut spoil this magical run of the six? I don't know. Either way, I mean, it's going to be brutal, but also fantastic. Like, you know, like the, there's the fan me and the broadcaster me and like they have conflicting ideas. But at the end, it's just like, yes, chaos. Give me all the good, the good stories. All of the excitement is what I want. Stay tuned for the drama. It's going to be really exciting. For sure. All right. Well, thank you so much, Erica. Um, Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to briefly mention? I think the only thing I would like to mention is, um, and I'm not sure if I've even alluded to this elsewhere um, because I've won players to kind of talk about this, but I'm under the impression that there will be players. So Soroya Tinker plans to take a knee, um, you have also Brooke Stacy, who uh, grew up on a reservation in Canada, who has said she will also take a knee. So there will be athletes in the N double that are taking on conversations of uh, social justice, um, highlighting racism and promoting equity and equality. And I think that's something that and part of it's because, again, some things haven't been announced yet, but I'm very excited. Perhaps excited isn't the right word. I am comforted by the fact that there are athletes in the NWHL that are willing to have very important and sometimes difficult conversations about the history of racism in North America and throughout the world, and that they are hoping to be agents of change for their sport. You know, that's a really great point. We didn't even have time to um, touch on the surface really of these uncomfortable conversations. And I know it's something that Anya Packer, who is um, Madison Packer's wife, she was tweeting about it over the summer. And I know that it's a conversation that 
a lot of us, especially those of us who are more privileged, um, it's a constant conversation that we have to have. And it's, it's just really, I don't want to say interesting, but I, I know it's something that she's brought up before um, that we definitely have to keep that kind of introspective look and not get comfortable because, okay, well, I read a few books, you know, um, right. I have a few black friends, you know, that, that type of thing. Right. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah. Unfortunately, we didn't have time to get into that today, but well, and that's okay. And again, I, like I said, I, I, I'm not necessarily, um, I will say that I've, I've been consulted, you know, person to person and not in my role as a broadcaster or a journalist and have been, you know, there's certain things and certain players that have confided and, and asked me questions. Um, so I want them to be able to explore that on their own time, but, um, but I appreciate you asking and giving me the opportunity to reflect on something that again, because not a lot of players have spoken up is maybe not being reported, but it is a storyline that I expect coming from uh, the single side in Lake Placid. Well, and there's something too to be said about um, performative allyship. And that's always something that a lot of people are conscious of Mm -hmm. in that yes we want to say that we are supportive in in everything but we don't want to make it seem like it's about us because of course it's not about us right yeah it's it's a balancing act and we still see with the u.s women's national team there are athletes that have knelt before that are now standing there are athletes that have stood in the past and are now kneeling and I understand why those conversations swirl around, but for me, especially since Colin Kaepernick still does not have a job with the National Football League, um, all of what we see as far as forcing people to kneel or not to kneel, we're way past that. I think um, it matters what players are talking about when they don't have a camera in front of their face or a microphone in front of their face? And are they showing up for their teammate? Are they willing to be vulnerable? Are they willing to be told that they are wrong and that they're making a mistake or that they, whether they were conscious of it or not, assaulted or offended, insulted, excuse me, hopefully not assaulted, insulted or offended someone. Um, And so those are the things that will not always be tangible. And unfortunately, in some ways, sports have become this, well, are you doing this or are you not doing this? And it's it's one or the other. Are you wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt or not? Are you kneeling or not? And that's how people de- define and determine how anti-racist someone is. But man, I tell you what, if t-shirts stopped bullets, I don't, I don't even think I have to finish that sentence. If yeah. t-shirts alone stopped bullets, don't you think Tamir Rice, uh, Michael Brown, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, don't you think their family would have wrapped them in the most hashtag woke shirt ever to keep them alive? So I've just, and maybe that's really what I want to say, Robin. Maybe what I really want to say is I hope people step back because again, I'm expecting for there to be conversation. Maybe we should listen to what the players are saying and what they aren't saying. And before we make sweeping indictments on what they wear or don't wear, if they kneel or don't kneel, maybe we should be prepared with questions that we want to ask about their active work in anti-racism. Maybe that's really what I want to get across. Well, it has been so great and so enlightening talking with you, Erica. This is going to be a season to remember for many reasons beyond anti-racism work and the drama on the ice. Um, it's it's going to be a lot. <laughs> it is going to be a lot. <laughs> I don't lot know where to really sh- go after yeah. your such impassioned speech. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's going to be a lot. It's going to be... Um, a short, quick, short season, but I really do appreciate 
being able to talk to you about the NWHL. And again, I really do appreciate your last question. And, you know, I, I honestly don't know if it, if it would have come to my mind to even bring that up if you hadn't opened the floor, which again is, is an active practice that we can do. So even in this conversation, I think hopefully we are empowering each other and listeners to, you know, to open the floor and to, to be open to, to hearing and thinking about things a little bit differently. For sure. All right. Well, listeners, if you want to follow Erica, she is on Twitter, Erica Ayala, ELindsay08. And uh, she will be broadcasting. And uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thanks again, Robin, for having me. Thanks, Erica.